0: Karen Kniesel, the former foreign minister of Austria, joining us here live in the Moscow studio. Great to see you this evening. Thank you so much for joining us here in Moscow. Thank you
1: for the invitation. Good evening.
0: This story doesn't go away anytime soon. We're talking about Ukraine, NATO, what is essentially turning into a standoff, except the White House now, Karen, is expected to respond to Russia's security proposals. And until now, as I'm sure you're aware, they're dismissed them out of hand. Is this possibly a sign of progress, do you think?
1: Uh, Yes, uh, because I don't believe that the Ukraine file is the only and number one priority file from a US vantage point. I mean, uh, we, we all know what they really care about, what they're worried about. It's the situation in the uh, South China Sea, it's Taiwan, it's China, it's technological edge. So these are the real issues for them and not so much uh, about Ukraine joining or not joining NATO. This has been on the agenda ever since 2008 and nobody was really enthusiastic about it. Mm.
0: What about, though, the NATO chief, Jens Stoltenberg? He's been firing off a lot of really harsh rhetoric about Russia, about Ukraine, but then he said this week, quote, NATO will not deploy combat troops to Ukraine. Is is that a change of tune from Stoltenberg after his harsh rhetoric? Do you think? Uh,
1: could be, uh, and maybe uh, there is some uh, rethinking or real reflecting, and not just reflex uh, in, in on that whole topic. Because we have seen a lot of of, of, of some 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 reac- uh, reactions that you cannot really consider as reflected. And uh, let me refer to a very distinguished U.S. diplomat who died some time ago, George Cannon. He was actually the one who had coined the containment of Cold War policies in the late 1940s. And George Cannon was still alive in the early 1990s when uh, there were the forced measures uh, for enlarging uh, the NATO eastward. And he said then very clearly that this is a big error. Don't do it. I think it was in 1995-6 that he said that. And um, that uh, uh, statement by Cannon should should be studied, should be implemented. Mm
0: -hmm. It's a very dangerous situation right now when it comes to the potential crisis with Ukraine. You've got a lot of harsh rhetoric coming out of NATO members as well. You've got other countries who would like to join NATO. You've got Russia saying, guys, stop. Show us a bit of respect stop encroaching along our borders. It's not Russia moving its borders westwards, you know. I wanted to ask you this, though, because now... Because I I have a funny feeling that there's some sort of backpedalling going on here regarding Mm. what's going on between Europe and Russia over Ukraine. Just the other day, Germany has said now it will not send lethal weapons to Ukraine. Croatia has vowed Mm. to pull its troops out of NATO if there is a conflict with Russia... Is there a problem with unity in NATO or is there any cracks appearing in the family alliance of NATO, do you think?
1: Yes, and I think these cracks have been around at least uh, since 2002, 2003, when we then saw the preparation for the uh, the Iraq war. And I remember very well the then uh, NATO Secretary General in February 2003 really being worried about the whole alliance falling apart because we had then a very deep going uh, uh, split inside the alliance uh, between the so-called old and, and and new European members as Rumsfeld, the then uh, US Secretary of Defense, coined it. And uh, I would say what was the case with Iraq could turn even harsher in the case of Ukraine because um, on the Middle East you can still agree on some issues, but when it comes to uh, a, a situation in Central Europe, Eastern Europe, and uh, well, Ukraine you can say it's just halfway between Central Europe and Eastern Europe, then many more people are affected. and. Uh, uh, it's interesting that we have already seen these dissenting voices, if I may say, uh, for instance, in the in, in the person of um, uh, President Macron. Um, right now, while we are speaking, the political directors of uh, the major uh, parties involved in the Normandy format—Russian, uh, political director, U.S., French, and British and German—are meeting in Paris in order to, to, to get something done, at least on the, on, on this level of, uh, of diplomacy. Uh, and uh, Macron has said that several times um, that uh, there has to be an understanding and an open dialogue with Russia. Mm
0: he says that, although Macron has also been pretty tough with Putin over the years as well. Although when when Putin has visited Macron, they're very, very chummy, very, very nice to each other. But I I can't imagine the conversations, Karen, they have behind closed doors. Now, let's just get back for a moment to this, this whole potential crisis over Ukraine. Russia is staging enormous military drills right now in the Barents Sea, in the Atlantic, down in the Baltic as well. There are Dozens of destroyers and warships on display going through drills. Then you've got tanks as well doing their military drills in in Western Russia. Um, The videos we've been showing here, Karen, have have really been enormous. Some some analysts saying Mm -hmm. we haven't seen military drills like this in decades. Russia is putting on a really big show right now. Do you think it's having the desired effect that the Kremlin would like to see?
1: Um... I think that NATO should be very uh, alert about its real uh, uh, fitness uh, to to confront another crisis. Uh, It has been not even six months ever since uh, this tremendous defeat in Kabul. Uh, The the, the whole uh, NATO presence was dismantled within a few hours uh, by some uh, guerrilla warriors uh, coming from the Hindu Kush mountains. Uh, so, uh, the biggest military alliance was defeated there in a very humiliating way. There never was any serious maneuver critique. Why did we fail? What went wrong? No lessons learned. And when you see uh, this dress uh, that you have just been describing, uh, if I were a NATO official, I would have, uh, at least now, some maneuver critique are the combined uh, forces within NATO really fit to face something Well, I mean,
0: that's just it. Are they combat-ready? Because what we're seeing from Russia here... And, of course, look, nobody wants a conflict, Karen. I mean, let's just be agreed. Nobody wants a war. However, with the military drills that Russia is engaging in right now, it's basically showing that Russia is armed and ready for a conflict that it will get into and finish very quickly... But I don't think NATO is even remotely ready to engage with Russia if it were a kinetic war.
1: Exactly, and NATO is uh, the coordinator of various armies, where also we shouldn't forget one aspect that I always like to highlight, it's language. Uh, We we have... uh, I mean, why, why do the British and the the United States uh, forces have this very close relationship? It's language. And within that NATO alliance, uh, even so, of course, the chief of staff people and so on speak some English, but the the, the whole uh, uh, supply chain of directives and orders is something that within uh, one united centralized military force, as is uh, the case with Russia, works in a different way. Uh, So... um, the fitness, the readiness uh, to strike, is definitely there on the on the Russian side. But as you have said, uh, there might be some back on, on on NATO side for for these evident reasons. Because I, I, uh, I mean, I've been teaching at the uh, defense college for about twenty years, and Austria is not a NATO country. But with throughout roundtables, debates, there were also often NATO officials coming, and. Uh, in the debates, I must say, I was not really that impressed by their overall reading of certain international mm. developments. Mm.
0: Let's, uh, let's shift gears here just a little bit. With, with, with all the uh, anti-Russia rhetoric, for example, and then, of course, the energy crisis going on in Europe, Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline still not get officially getting the, the green light to, to go ahead. Um, do you think Nord Stream 2 will eventually get the green light, given all this anti-Russian rhetoric?
1: North Stream. Um, there's, there's a profound misunderstanding about North Stream, and it starts with uh, many people presented, whether it's politicians or editorials, as if that were the first time that gas, natural gas, is flowing from Russia direct to Germany. Are there
0: 13 Russian gas pipelines coming into Europe from it's, the north, north east, east, and south? Yeah, there,
1: there's so many. Exactly, and we're speaking about an enlargement of an existing pipeline, and that, ex- that pipeline was decided upon. In 2005, it went operative. In 2011, there was demand. For more, so uh, companies got together and said in 2017 we built an enlarged uh, Nord Stream. That was Nord Stream 2. So this is number one misperception by many people saying all the time speaking about Nord Stream and it should be happening. It's there. It's, it's it's only that there's an enlarged pipeline, there's an enlarged amount of natural gas that should flow from Russia to Germany. So this is number one perception misperception. And um, it's also a, a, a very bizarre, um, uh, how should I say that? The, 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 there's a lot of, of, uh, of gossiping really in many chanceries uh, in, in, in the West because they say, we we think about excluding the Russian Federation from the SWIFT, but at the same time, don't touch Nord Stream, as is the case for the Germans and the Austrians in particular. Mm. Uh, But how do you then want to pay your bills? Do you want to to travel with physical gold uh, to Russia and pay in cash your bills? Because that was the case that Turkey did uh, in 2011, 2012, when uh, Iran was excluded from the SWIFT. And no financial transactions were any more possible. So you cannot ask, on the one hand, excluding uh, the Russian Federation from uh, current uh, financial mechanisms and at the same time say, no, no, but we still are interested in the gas and oil supply. Mm. Uh, uh, There's a lot of, uh, there's a series of statements without... Uh, full reflection uh, to the very end of whatever they announce. Mm.
0: Can we shift gears a little bit, Karen, and talk about another subject while I have you here? Because it's so good to have you here in the Moscow studio for this programme today. In the UK, in England, for example, we've seen Boris Johnson scrap the COVID restrictions now. No COVID passports, COVID passes, no Mm. mandates on injections, this, that and the other. Essentially, a sense of freedom is returning to England. We're also seeing a number of other European countries now signalling that perhaps by the end of January or in the middle of February, they also might relax all these COVID restrictions and and actually relax it with all the travel restrictions as well. Um, But your homeland, Austria... Is still being very, very harsh with the people yeah. there. Austria is trying to fine the unvaxed 3,004 or 3,600 euros yeah. every single month. How can you justify that? Or can you explain that to me um, when other parts of Europe are literally saying bye bye COVID and dropping all the restrictions? Yeah.
1: Exactly. I mean, uh, um, there is. Uh, uh, a very strange situation right now in Austria in particular, namely that uh, both the public, the medical services and uh, the decision-takers act as if there were no world around them. It's it's really like a, a universe by itself. And uh, I've uh, been observing ever since uh, was the past two years, I had the chance still to travel. I lived in France partially over the last two years and I felt like a traveler of the 17th century mm. telling people in 21st century what life is like in France or in Turkey or in Russia. And uh, people are within their little bubble. And especially with, with the current government, uh, there is this kind of... Uh, really being full of themselves that they know how it should be done should be handled and uh, it lacks logic uh, for the reasons that you have just been describing it lacks most probably also uh, a, a, a real legal basis. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, the, the moment it will be brought uh, to the constitutional court, I'm pretty sure that uh, there, there, there will be uh, fault lines within the legislation. You've
0: got the, I mean, you've got the old Nuremberg Codes, haven't you? The Nuremberg Code 6, Section 3, where no government can mandate some sort of medical yeah. thing on, on a person's individual freedom. Yeah. That's, it's your personal, private choice, right? Exactly.
1: So. And uh, apart from that... Uh, there were tens of thousands of uh, written statements by associations, individuals, and they should have been dealt with properly, properly before voting in parliament last mm. week. Mm. Uh, so um, I, I have no idea what is really pushing the government into that direction, uh, but uh, I feel that it will end in a tremendous loss of trust People. And yeah, why do
0: you think that is? Why, you, why would there be such a loss, loss of trust?
1: Uh, because, you think? Uh, still a year ago, a government officials said there will never be a mandatory vaccination. Yeah. So, if on such an important topic you have uh, 180 degree uh, change of mind and legislation,
0: People lose trust. Karen, look at all the protests happening all over major European cities at the moment. Even in Germany the other day, officials said, we have not seen demonstrations like this since the Second World War. Mm-hmm. They saw demonstrations in over a 1,000 cities and towns all across Germany the other day. And we had them, oh my gosh, if I can remember, Helsinki, London, Paris. Brussels, I mean,
1: the big ones in Brussels last and Brussels. And Brussels, and Brussels
0: week, was, yeah. I mean, these demonstrations are, are enormous. And for some bizarre reason, Karen, the mainstream media doesn't like to show them. I don't know, they, they call these protests protesters, or they call them like a danger or a menace to society, I guess because it doesn't fit the mainstream narrative. I wanted to ask you, though, we're getting really mixed signals from the WHO these days. There are some members who say that the Omicron variant is essentially just a common cold, runny nose, headache, fever, sore throat, but then you've got other members of the WHO and other companies saying, no, you've got to get your vaccination, people mm-hmm. are dying right here. Why, why do you think we're getting such a mixed signal from what is the World Health Organization and others?
1: I fear it's, uh, it's unfortunately a spirit of our time. We are living in a very fragmented world. And uh, it's a loss of leadership. Uh, It's a loss of uh, um, also maybe here and there of courage and backbone to really stick with one path. So um, when uh, in many EU countries we started with the booster, the third vaccination, considering also as necessary, otherwise you're considered unvaccinated. Um, I remember Director General of the WHO, Dr. Tedros, said very clearly: "Please forget about the booster. First, roll out the vaccination for the other hemispheres of the globe, because you will never ever get rid of mutants, of mutations, if you do not start doing something about uh, the transfer of the virus and its uh, uh, and, and and other elements, in, uh, whether it's on the African continent or, or Latin America." So. Uh, when you when you read uh, the statements by uh, World Health Organization Director General, you also can read a, a much more sober voice. Mm. And w- w- what is also intriguing is the way the European Union is uh, taking up here. Uh, a kind of, of legal role that it doesn't have. That's right. Uh, we we know, all speak about the Korean vaccination passport. Well, I grew up and I still carry it with me, the yellow World Health Organization passport in which I have all kinds of vaccinations. And they are the ones who are mandated uh, on a universal level, on a truly global level, uh, to, to testify what, what is your vaccination status. Uh, but the european union came up with a green pass for one type of vaccination i mean it's it's yeah. a, it's a very weird approach it's been lacking it's a,
0: logic i mean all of this has been a, lacking basic yeah. logic from, from the get go and i yeah. think the, the normal everyday average person will agree with that i was reading uh, one of the men of the who was quoted by a denver colorado uh, tv channel saying that during the delta wave natural immunity was actually stronger than the Mm -hmm. pharmaceutical vaccines that were being offered at the time. Do do you think, Karen, there's been any conflict of interest with with the developers of the Pfizer, Moderna and these different vaccines um, becoming more rich than they've ever become in the history of mankind? In fact, one of the things that people are missing during this COVID crisis was it was the biggest transfer of wealth in the history of Mm -hmm. mankind and the billionaires have now... Increased their wealth by six times across the board, but this is supposed to be a humanitarian crisis. Is there some sort of conflict of interest there? Do you think that that these pharmaceutical companies were able to and allowed to cash in to such a degree on this?
1: Well, I uh, I have no insight at all into the world of pharmaceutical congress. I only uh, work. I only know that it's a it's a world also of its own, and I've never been inside, so I don't dare to make any statement or observation on that. What I've been observing is to which degree decision-takers were driven by events and were in the beginning were caught by surprise, yes, but then depending on the government, on the region, you could see where common sense came back and said like, we have done one lockdown, let's keep it with that, we cannot uh, do that with our people. And uh, the, the, the major subject that I personally don't understand as being somebody who has always had this World Health Organization yellow passport because they are the ones who do it on a global level. When I travel, for instance, to a country where I need a yellow fever vaccination, uh, I don't ask about the serum. Nobody tells me which serum to take. I take the serum that is there for yellow fever. Mm, mm, And mm. we now have this vaccination uh, rivalry and this uh, administrative process and the stepping stones whether it's for a Sputnik vaccination, whether it's for Sinopharma or others, I mean, uh, are you now interested in having a a, a global response or are you not interested in it? here, uh, I think also Commissioner-President Ursula von der Leyen, who is a medical doctor by training herself, who has studied public health... Isn't, she, isn't her
0: husband also one of the top uh, viral biologists in Europe? He has a big virus institute with uh, developing mm. all sorts of medicines. Ursula von der husband.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know what, what, what her husband's position on that, but I know that she studied public health. Mm. And, uh, and as somebody who comes from that field, uh, I mean, she should also have, I would say, a much more common-sense approach. Mm.
0: Karen Kniesel, the former foreign minister of Austria, it's been such a pleasure having you here and I wish we had more time to talk about this because you touched on all all the pertinent hot topics of today. Karen Kniesel, thanks a million.
1: You're most welcome and I wish you a good remainder of the day. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you very
0: much.